0: Why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to go to John chapter 10. Before we do anything else, I'm going to pray and then we're going to launch into the word this morning. Father, we are just so grateful that you would see fit through your mercy, your gracious goodness to open our eyes, to see you for who you are. And Father, we're here to make much of you. We're here to behold you that we might become more like you. And so we pray this morning as we read your scriptures, may they come alive in our hearts. May they accomplish all that you desire through the power of your spirit. Come and have your way afresh in our hearts and our lives. Come and be glorified in our midst, King Jesus. Reveal more of who you are. You are the desire and the delight of our hearts commit this time to you. In your wonderful name, King Jesus. Amen. John chapter 10 is the starting address. I want to look at one verse in this portion of scripture and then we're going to flick back just a couple of chapters to John chapter 8 as we set the scene this morning. We have been in this series for those who've been around the last probably six weeks or so just with a particular focus We've entitled it Wholehearted, what it means to be a wholehearted people. Recognizing and remembering the greatest command is to what? To serve with all our hearts? To love, to love the Lord with all our hearts, to be a wholehearted people. And one of the the strongest warnings, of course, we've also reflected upon was Christ's own warning to the church at Ephesus which was doing so many wonderful things. It's an incredible list. And yet Jesus looks at that particular church and said, and yet this I have against you. You've lost your first love. So quickly find that, reestablish that, or your lampstand, he goes on to say, will be removed. It's a harsh warning. It's a wake-up call, but it shows the intensity of the Lord towards this one reality that we would be a wholehearted people. And so we've been looking at different things that take us away from that wholehearted pursuit of the Lord. We've covered a fair bit of territory. And in fact, I thought that we had potentially landed the series last week, but every good sermon has a second amen, right? <laughs> Especially if you read Paul, there's normally at least two, if not three or four. So I figure every good sermon series should have a second amen. So if you like, this is sort of a... A a postscript to the series, or we can see it as a standalone, whatever you prefer. But I want to look at this portion of Scripture here and really address something, encourage your hearts in one particular area. John chapter 10, here's a passage. Jesus, of course, is in the midst of proclaiming who he is. Uh, We've studied through the Gospel of John. We did a series, I remember, a few years ago, looking at the I Am statements, because Uh, The Apostle John writes his book around these seven claims of Christ. I am, I am. In this particular portion, he's claiming, he's not claiming, he's testifying. He's making clear that he is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd who leads his sheep. His sheep know his voice. That is his intention. And I'm resisting giving any more background or reading any more of this passage, although it's all good. So read it at any particular point in time. But there's one phrase in here that's just been running through my heart this week. If we jump down to verse 10, Jesus talking about the sheep. He leads the sheep. He is the good shepherd, the good shepherd. Verse 10, it says this, "...the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they," being his sheep, being his people, "...may have life and have it abundantly." The thief comes only to steal and kill, steal and kill and destroy." But I, Jesus speaking of himself, have come that they, my people, may have life and have it abundantly. A passage that probably for many of us is familiar. Jesus says, I have come to lead you to life. I'm the shepherd and that's what a shepherd does. He cares for the sheep. The sheep know my voice and I've come that I might lead you to life. But the context which grabbed me this week is interesting. That passage is connected, it's one verse, with this image also of a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So we're probably comfortable with what Jesus is, the one who comes to bring life and to lead us. So what then is the thief? Well, you may or you may not be interested to know there's quite a bit of scholarly debate around this notion and concept of who is the thief, one key, uh, key idea is, well, really Jesus is talking about the religious rulers. If you read the context here of John chapter 9, we see this account where Jesus heals a man who's born blind. And of course, the Pharisees at the time, they can't understand or comprehend what's going on, and they question this guy, and the poor guy who's caught in the middle, and they're like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what's happened. All I know is that Jesus has come, and I can see. My eyes opened open again. I've experienced and encountered Jesus. I don't have the, the theological framework around it. And then, of course, the Pharisees question Jesus and it ends with this interesting account where the Pharisees say to Jesus, well, Jesus, are you accusing us of being blind? Is, is, that, is that what you're trying to say? And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 if, if I was accusing you of being blind, that's easy to fix. I've just healed a blind man. That's no issue. I can easily fix that problem. The problem is not that you're blind. The problem is that you think you can see. So he's saying the real problem here is that you're living with this perspective of deception you're not aware of your true condition another so that's one one stream of thought says well the thief is talking about this religious system you know a, a lot of people also like to link the theme into satan who of course jesus and we'll look at this in a moment says is the father of lies i would say it's both and and even broader than that the thief here jesus deliberately leaves vague for this reason I would suggest it's this. Jesus is saying, I'm leading you to life. And the thief, in fact, earlier in the passage, he says, the thief comes to distract. Any other voice, anything else that would keep you from that is the thief. So the thief is simply, I believe, what Jesus is saying is any other voice, any other deception, any other lie or system of lies, so it's both end, it's all the above and more, that would keep us from the life that he has to offer. So it's a call for us to be listening for his voice, because he says, I'm the only voice who can lead you to life, but it's a call to be discerning. What are the other voices? What are the other lies? What's the other stuff? That's around us that could cause us to live in deception be it religious systems, be it um, demonic influence. We get a bit scared when we hear that, that voice, be it the, the worldly system, be it w- whatever may come. Be discerning and listen to my voice because my voice will lead you to life, whereas the thief has come with only one agenda to kill, to steal. And destroy. So that's really the context here. I want to talk about this notion of moving from lies to life. What is something that can keep us bound? What is something that can keep us from entering into the fullness of what the Lord has for us? And clearly, in this passage, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and he's warning his people against any form of lies and deception. To be aware of it, to be alert to it, that it may not take away what it is that he has to offer, moving from lies to life. Jump back, a couple of chapters, let's look at John 8, one more passage of scripture and then we'll kind of launch in to what's on my heart this morning. John 8 verse 31, Jesus says this, another passage that I hope in some ways at least is somewhat familiar. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Now, just pause there for a moment, because I think this context is fascinating. He's not speaking here to unbelievers. He's speaking to people who believed in him. They already had some sense of who Jesus was. Jesus doesn't elaborate exactly on what he meant by those who believed in him. But they they believed in Jesus. They were believers. That's what the word says. They're speaking to believers, and he says this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, some interesting things here. Jesus is proclaiming himself to be the truth. I am bringing the truth. In fact, elsewhere he claims not just to be bringing it, but to be the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have come as truth to show you what truth is, and that truth will set you free. So what does that mean? The other side of the same coin, it means that Jesus is truth. He's come to set us free, so our natural condition, even for people that he said as believers, is what? If we need to be set free, we are in some way in captivity. We're captives. So Jesus is saying to believers, I've come to set you free. That's I've come as the truth. I'm proclaiming the truth. Abide in my truth and you will be set free. And you need to be set free because you are in different ways captive. Captive to the opposite of truth which is lies. Okay, we're following along. We're tracking Fantastic. In fact, he'll go on and elaborate. Just jump down to verse 43. And he says this, they of course say to Jesus in response, well, w- what do you mean? We're like, uh, we're the offspring of Abraham. We're not captive. We're not, we're not enslaved to anything. And we're going to talk about sin. And then he concludes with this, verse 43. He says, how come you're not understanding what I'm saying? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. A moment of pastoral tendency here. He says, you are of your father, the devil... And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. You think, wow, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty intense. What is Jesus trying to call out there? I would simply bring us to this simple reality from that particular passage. He's saying he is the truth. There is not only a context, if you like, there's not only a, a captivity that he's trying to set us free from, but there is an overall context, not just of lies, but of a liar. He's calling out a system. He's saying there is a system of lies that is all around you and there is one who I'm calling the liar. He is the father of lies and I've come to set you free. Not just, here's the point, not just from isolated lies but from a system of lies. You see the difference there? So Jesus is saying I'm here to set you free. He's saying I'm the good shepherd that's come to bring you you, life. And there's a system of lies that he's breaking through to bring freedom to the captives. So let's examine those two parts. There is truth, and then there is a context of lies. And then bring it back together and see where we land. Are we okay? Following along, tracking along. So number one, there is truth. Now, I know Jesus has claimed it. I know for most of us, probably with that particular statement, you'd nod along and say amen and say, yeah, well, Jesus is truth. But I just want to underline it and reinforce it to make sure that we're all on the same page here. See, fundamentally, Christianity, Christ, came as truth. It is a truth claim. And we should continually re-emphasize that because we live in the midst of a a modern secular society that relegates, at best, faith to the sphere of subjective personal opinion. If, if you want to believe that, well, that's fine. It's all myths and legends. If it, if it works for you, then okay. The problem is that Christian faith never fits in that kind of box. The Bible is not mythology. It's history. It's a truth claim. And we see that all the way through. One of the passages I often refer to is Matthew sixteen sixteen. Jesus is having this moment with the disciples and he's begun his his ministry and there's all these series on who he is. And so he brings his disciples in. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And of course, they answer like, well, some say that you're a prophet. Some say that you're this, you're that. He, he, He confronts them. He stops them and says, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Peter, of course, he stands up and he says, you are The Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one, God in human flesh, the God who's come to rescue and deliver and save. And Jesus, of course, commends him and says, Blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I mean, that alone is an astounding statement. But then he goes on and he says, in fact, on that rock, I will build my church. On that foundation... So we think, well, why was that so important for Christ? Why on that foundation? Why not on the foundation of his miracles? They're pretty amazing. Why not pick a moment of Lazarus coming out of the tomb or walking on the water? On, on that foundation of, of me proving that I'm, I'm greater than death and great. I mean, they're, they're all important. But he says on that foundation for this reason, from the very beginning, Christianity was a faith built on the centrality of its claim to truth. It's not just cleverly contrived stories. It's not just subjective, therapeutic, wishful thinking. It's not just good practical principles. It is truth and specifically the truth that is distilled into this one defining absolute. That is who Christ proclaimed himself to be. So the miracles are important, but they're important ultimately to this end that they proclaim and declare who he is. Ultimately, the resurrection is so important, but it's important primarily because it testifies who he is and that he accomplished what he said he came to accomplish. In fact, I love what Timothy Keller says. He's like, if, if that is indeed the case as we believe it is, then the burden of proof is not on God, but it is on us. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have all you need to accept that he is who he said. So Christianity, here's the point. Christianity is truth. It is a truth claim. Jesus came to say, I have come to proclaim truth and a truth that will set you free. Not just practical principles. I mean, they're fine and they're good. Not just sort of some subjective wishful thinking, not some crutch to get you through some difficult times. I've come to proclaim truth, the reality of who God is and who you are. I've come to open your eyes so that you would know what truth is. That's the first piece of the puzzle. The second we've seen is that there is this context around us, not only of lies, but of a liar and his schemes, which are always centered, always have been centered primarily around lying. See, how do we find, as Scripture unfolds, Satan, who is termed the enemy of God's people. Right from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, he's there. God's laid out what is the truth. And what does Satan do? He comes along to deceive, doesn't he? Did God really say that? He comes to plant these seeds of doubt. He comes to bring lies. We see Jesus in the wilderness. There's temptation. There's Satan again. What is his major strategy? It's to question. It's to... To plant these seeds of doubt, it is to bring lies. Are you? you is, is, did God really, you know, and how does Jesus combat that? He combats that with truth. What did we just read in John chapter 8? That he is indeed the father of lies. There is not little isolated lies, but there is a system and a strategic influence of the liar. And you might say, well, why is it important for us to recognize and realize that? There's there's many passages in there. Ephesians 6.10, it talks about being strong in the Lord and his mighty power that you might take your stand against the devil's schemes. 2 Thessalonians 3, it talks about the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. 2 Corinthians 10, chapter 4 and 5 talks about the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. We demolished arguments that every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. First Peter chapter 5, James chapter 4, there's these similar themes of being alert. Be alert. There, there is a real enemy and there's a real strategy. And I think sometimes when it comes to dealing with the strategies of the enemy, we have a perspective that's far more like a scene out of the new Ghostbusters movie. Who's, who's seen the redone Ghostbusters? Nobody's seen it. One up the back there. There you go, Tony. And you know Ghostbusters, right? These guys dressed up in suit and they're they're basically going around looking for ghosts on every side of the corner. I I think sometimes we misinterpret standing against the devil's schemes as some sort of holy Ghostbusters. We're going to go find and eliminate the demons that are hiding around the corner and under every bush. Whereas we see here that the strategy of the enemy is comes often in a far more subtle way in this form of deception. Little lies comes to undermine what it is that God has said. It talks in, uh, Paul talks in the book of Romans, chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And here's what I'm trying to get us to think through and establish and understand, is it's not just... Little white lies here and there. Jesus is trying to paint a scene that there is a worldly view, there's a worldly way of thinking that is not good and helpful and healthy. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's subtle, but there is lies and deception that keep us from what the Lord has for us. Can I give us one example? And I I risk being, I'm not trying to be, but I risk being a little political here. Just to try and illustrate the point that what I'm not talking about is kind of little subtle lies, but it's a system, it's a worldly way of thinking that the enemy loves nothing more to just feed into it lies and corruption. Um, Adam, our wonderful worship and youth pastor, Adam's been on staff now for coming up on 10 years, a a decade, and we've had many conversations. One of his major roles is looking after young people. We've had this uh, discussion a number of times, so less than 10 years, and we've said, you know what, if, if we had had a conversation 10 years ago and said, what would the greatest challenges be in youth ministry in terms of um, raising up young people in the church, and either of us had suggested that one of the major things, the major, major struggle points for young people that we'd have to pastor people through is in the area of gender. I mean, both of us would have said, you've got to be kidding me. Like, it wasn't even on the scene 10 years ago, and yet it is rife, this, this whole area of what is a man and what is a woman. There's quite a prominent case or uh, instance back in March in the U.S., uh, nomination to the Supreme Court, Judge Jackson was her name, and it was the confirmation hearing. She was asked by a senator, Judge Jackson... Can you give us a definition of a woman? What what is a woman? And of course, if you've read the account, she said, well, I don't know. I'm not a biologist. I cannot answer the question. In our own country, the former chief medical officer and current Secretary of Department of Health, Professor Brendan Murphy, in a Senate Estimates uh, Committee back in April, he was asked the same question by a Liberal senator and said, Professor Murphy, can you give us a definition? What, What is a woman? And he he sort of evaded the point and eventually said, well, I'll take it on notice. And he did just a couple of weeks provide a uh, 78-word explanation, a formal definition which basically said there is no definition. Chief Medical Officer, this is a Supreme Court nomination in the US. One that grabbed my attention, this is just from last week, it was reported that a senior bishop of the Church of England, Dr. Robert Innes, said this week in a public statement that the church, being the Church of England overseas, has no official definition anymore of a woman amidst an evolving understanding in this contemporary world. Now, all of that to say, there's, there's obvious examples and there is subtle examples. As I read that, and I could say a lot, and I'm resisting saying too much. don't want to get in trouble. But Romans 122, it talks about this, doesn't it? It says, Professing to be wise, they became fools. And it goes on, verse twenty-five: they exchanged the truth for a lie. That's that's where we find ourselves in. And we could say, well, as I've had conversations with people, it's just the product of uh, the long march of cultural Marxism, which to a certain degree it is, or it's the product of the French Revolution, which, again, to a certain extent, it is. And we could point to other uh, trends throughout history. I would say this, all of those are manifestations of one's simple reality that Jesus is trying to point us towards, that I'm trying to help us see and understand as well, is that there's the context of the lies of a liar. And it's not just peripheral, it is all around us now again this is not for us to be afraid to think what we're being bombarded of it uh, bombarded with it but all those passages we read before from ephesians and thessalonians corinthians first peter they talk about being alert so not afraid but being alert being aware these things are happening this is around us there is real truth that matters and is on offer but it's in the context of real lies that have come to deceive us. And so what we believe matters for this particular reason. The truth or the reality that we believe will always shape and navigate our lives. We could say, or put it this way, as we believe, so will we become. Dallas Willard puts it this way, we'll always live at the mercy of our ideas. Our beliefs, beliefs result in our behavior. They do. What we believe matters. It shapes our lives. And Jesus is saying it's very clear. It's truth that leads to life or there is a thief. There's a worldly system that's come under the influence of Satan because that's all he does is he lies to kill and to steal and to destroy. And I should say, um, I don't want to make light of gender issues or any other of those issues. They are real struggles for some people. And there may be someone here, there may be someone watching online, and that's a genuine struggle. And I would just implore you with all of my heart and love and affection that that is a lie that will never lead you to life. I would encourage you to examine that. And in light of that, to examine the truth that is revealed in Scripture as to who God says you are. And that has the path towards life. So lies distort our soul and lead us to ruin, and the problem is we find ourselves in this nature where it's, it's all around us. Let me give, hopefully, what's a somewhat humorous example to illustrate this point, point, um, one that I, I know I've used in the past. But we had this moment, my wife and I, who, uh, and we came from quite different um, family upbringings and, and backgrounds in some ways, quite similar in others, but hers was a very a quiet um, upbringing, particularly around the the family mealtime, my family, there was lots of kids, there was often others around, it was loud, it was boisterous, there was always our practical jokes and things happening and so very early on in our relationship, I'd geared up the family and I said, look, I'm, I'm bringing this girl home, this is well before we were married, I think we'd just begun to kind of formally uh, start seeing each other. I said, look, I want everybody to be on their best behaviour. That's always, always a recipe for disaster, isn't it? It's just like your kids, you start... Please never do that again. Then you're almost asking for it. So I said, "Please, I want everyone on the best behaviour. I want this to be, you know, to all go swimmingly. We've got to kind of impress her and make sure she thinks that we're respectable. And yeah, you know, it's a big deal. So anyway, the dinner came, and I'd brought my uh, sister home. And normally it was my my sister. I brought my wife, my now wife, my girlfriend at the time, to the house. And normally it was my brother and I who'd get up to mischief, but in this instance it was my sister. That's where she comes in the picture. And so she had this great idea, and I don't know where she found it from, but she found this foul-smelling stink bomb. Like it was disgustingly gross, the most horrific odour you can ever smell. And so we'd all sat down around the meal table. We're just, you know, everyone's at that stage pretending to put on the good face. And then all of a sudden there's this horrendous odour that just begins to fill the room. (laughs) And someone's like, is is there a dead animal somewhere here? What's what's going on? And what actually made it much worse is that another one of my sisters at the time had some stomach issues. So she'd smelt this, and she was like, oh, guys, I'm so sorry, unbeknownst to her, it was me. Like, I just, you know, I'm sorry, it was me, I passed wind, you know, like, I'm so sorry. And so, of course, we're all trying to be very polite for her sake, as, you know, literally you could see it, the room was just filling with smell and this green odour and the poor old sister is getting more and more embarrassed. She says, guys, I'm so sorry, like this has never happened this bad before, I don't know what is happening and we, we endured this, I don't know how long it was for, but it was for some time, really for the sake of my other sister, trying to just kind of cover her embarrassment until all of a sudden the instigator, my other sister, she could not contain herself anymore, and she said, guys, I've actually planted this particular device, and we removed it, and the truth set us all free, and believe me, the freedom was sweet. Here's my concern, here's the point, here's where we land, here's what I'm really going after this morning. We live in this culture where there is this aroma that is not of the Lord. It's not on the peripheral, it's surrounding us. And there is a tendency on every level for us to own some of these lies. It just is. It's, it's natural of being in this fallen world, not just in the area of identity, although that's a huge one for young people, even Christian young people. They think, well, that, that, that is me. And the enemy loves nothing more because he knows that if he can catch us in this snare of believing the lie, then that lie then shapes our lives and determines who we become. And so we're in this culture. Maybe it's not something that's significant in terms of the gender area. I would say in my years of ministry, there's nothing that is more powerful in terms of keeping people bound than believing lies. And there's nothing more freeing and liberating than leading people to Jesus, who is the truth that can set them free. Here's some other ones. Maybe it's simply this, and these are all, real genuine examples of people that I've come across, maybe some of these resonate. The lie that the young man believed that his worth is something that could only ever be earned. And so he spends his life striving, trying harder, trying and trying harder on the never-ending hamster wheel. Maybe it's the young girl who feels Ugly and unworthy of love. Maybe there was something someone said, a parent or a friend, when she was younger and all of a sudden she believed it. That's, that's it. That's who I am. I'm just owning that. I, I am. I'm, I'm not as beautiful as all the models on Instagram and their perfect lives that are actually anything but behind the photos. But, but, but I am. I'm ugly and unworthy of love. That's the lie. Spending then a life searching for love, as the saying goes, in all the wrong places. Maybe it's the lie. This has been a, a big one I've seen on a number of, a number of different occasions. Well, I, I am a bad person. I am a bad Not just I've done bad things, but something, someone said something along the way. The enemy just got his claws in. I haven't just done something bad. I am something bad. Like, I am bad. And then we spend our lives trying to seek acceptance. Maybe it's in the area of perfectionism. Never good enough. Trying and trying again. Can be lies about our body. Can be lies about whether God loves us. Lies about our past. Lies about hope for the future. What I can guarantee, each and every one of us, what I can guarantee, if I'm perfectly honest before you as well, is that there is. There is elements and there's aspects. Sometimes they're obvious and they're easy to identify. Sometimes they're subtle. They're very subtle. But there's ways that we've bought into this system. So that is me. And the good news is that this morning, as Jesus loves to do, as we read from John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, he's the good shepherd who's come to lead us to life. He is the one whose truth and His truth alone can set us free, can break the power of any lies that hold us and keep us in captivity. So I want you just to close your eyes, put your Bibles, your notes aside. Let's just spend a moment with the Lord. I don't know if we can have some background music or keys, guitar, something. But I don't want to, uh, to preach a message like this without giving us the opportunity or giving the Holy Spirit and us the opportunity to just ask that question. Lord, what, what is it for me, or where is it, that there are areas, that there's aspects, if I'm perfectly honest, that I've bought into things that are not true? And I'd love for this to be a moment and a morning where we bring those things into the light and we discover again the truth. Not just the principles, but the person who comes to set free, who says, you are lovable because I paid my precious blood for you. you are good because I've taken your sinful rags and I've clothed you in his garments his righteousness that your life has purpose and meaning you are valuable because you are purposed and predestined before he lay the foundation of the world. In love he predestined you. So Father, I just pray for, for us this morning, for those gathered here, for others online. Holy Spirit, we just pray in this moment that you'd come and search our hearts. That you'd show us if there is... If there's ways, whether they're subtle, whether they're obvious, that we've bought into the enemy's lies. Where the thief has come in. Whether it's religious systems, whether it's worldly systems. Whether it's things that we've believed about ourselves, whether it's things that others have spoken over us. our lives are driven, not by your truth and the truth of who you are, but of the lies that we've believed about ourselves. Lord, as you reveal them, may we have the grace this morning just to, to bring them to you, to say, Jesus, what is it you say about me? What is it you say about this? we'd know the truth that truly sets us free as you say whom you set free is free indeed that is indeed the freedom that leads us to life I pray Lord that we would be a a people who know the voice of the Good Shepherd the way we need to that you'd help us stop listening to the lies the lies of social media Lies of materialism and things that others have said. Lord, come and set us free, we pray. Set us free. Set your people free. To see you breaking chains. setting us free again, the prison walls be completely demolished. May this be a new day of freedom, we pray. In Jesus' name.